Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome uh, to London. And today, despite the pandemic, we're actually having a presentation from two people uh, based in London. And today's topic is finance in the climate decade, emerging stewards of the net zero resilient transition. Now, I desperately wanted to put insurance on this because our guest today is Rowan Douglas, CBE, who's the head of climate and the head of the climate and resilience hub at Willis Towers Watson. And I've had the pleasure of knowing uh, Rowan for many years, and he is not a newcomer to some climate bandwagon. He's been giving it deep thought from the side of insurance. Uh, but despite not putting insurance in the title, we have well over 100 people uh, coming on board today. And so we've got lots of people for the discussion. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it really is my privilege uh, to be able to introduce so many of these webinars. And I'm only able to do so because of the tolerance and generosity of our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And for that, we're grateful. Uh, but today is very much on target, climate change and all the various technologies and insurance, so all about finance. And of course, mixed into this clearly with anything as large as climate change is a heck of a lot of economics. Now, the program today is a fairly familiar format to our regulars, which is that I, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our expert. Uh, Rowan will speak for approximately uh, 20 minutes or so, and then uh, we will have a Q&A discussion with him. Please type in your observations, comments, or questions. Uh, three points of order, if I may. Uh, first is that the slides are already up uh, and will be up after the presentation if you want to refer to them in more detail. Secondly, we are making a recording, as you're probably aware, and that recording will go up in approximately two working days, so either late Monday or sometime on Tuesday, uh, and it will be accessible for you to send to friends and colleagues. Uh, but the third item is to keep the conversation going today. Please do type in your comments and questions using the GoToWebinar facility. Uh, please do not WhatsApp me or text me or email me at least now because I'm here with you uh, and I'll only get those too late to feed them in. Further, uh, any comment, question, or observation that you type in there, uh, I will be happy to send uh, on to Rowan and it will, uh, the way that the system works, have your email attached to it so we can address you directly, particularly if something of detail that you'd like to follow up upon. Uh, but really, uh, at this point, with no further ado, uh, Rowan, the floor is very much yours. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be uh, invited to the FS Club. And as you said, um, we've known each other, you know, a long time, 15 years or so. And uh, uh, it's it's exciting to see some of the ideas that we uh, talked about earlier beginning to sort of ripen and lots of new things coming on board. So uh, and I know it's a, a great a great group. Uh, so some folks I think in the audience I've known, known for a while and, and some new faces too. So um, I think uh, we're going to kick off with a poll. Um, so we'll have that um, uh, up here. Have a read, see what you think. Looking ahead to 2030, how much emphasis do you think governments and regulators might give to using financial markets as the primary as a primary means of driving and implementing the uh, whole economy net zero transition? I'll give you a Great. few minutes so to figure that one in. Uh, folks, if you wouldn't mind just answering it, Rowan. Uh, our FS Club crowd are very, very swift off the mark. We're just about to hit the 10 second mark and 58% have voted. So it's almost there like a race here. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave it open just a moment longer. Uh, well over three quarters have voted. Um, and, and just about to close the poll now and show you the results, uh, which are, uh, one might say, uh, given the nature of our audience, uh, 
fairly self-evident, but clearly 61%, uh, nearly two-thirds of the audience, uh, think that government should accord this a very high priority. So uh, back to you. Oh, that's fabulous. You see, I didn't know whether I was going to have a real tough act and it was going to be 10% or, uh, or, or a supporting group. So you're clearly a very progressive progressive crowd. So this is more it's about uh, right uh, the, implica the implications of that and how it might happen. But uh, I'll, I'll sort of set the scene. So there's two general observations I'm going to make which, which pick up. And we, I'll also say we are going to talk about insurance quite a bit in the second half, but it's not in the title because then we, we may not have had quite such a large audience. I don't know. In a few years' time, it would be higher. But anyway, the two general observations are this. One is, uh, for the first time in my career at least, um, which is about 30 years old now, the whole financial sector and all its cottage industries, not least here in London, banking, asset management, asset owners, private equity, for the first time is being re is being regulated or under undergoing a beginning of a regulation of a really sort of broad range of new strategic risks in the same sort of way at the same sort of time. So I think it's really important that we look at the financial system as a whole and how the different pockets and buckets of it are going to interrelate particularly closely in this area. And, and we're even seeing that in our own shop at Willis Towers Watson, where it's creating a level of interaction between our sort of departments, uh, which is unprecedented. But I think that has real implications for how um, governments will look at the financial sector as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a sort of a mechanism of change. And the second general observation I'll come back to is that major industrial and economic transitions have obviously real uh, financial consequences around the management of risk, but also real social consequences. And in the later part of the show, I'm going to talk about how, how finance as a whole, but particularly insurance, public insurance, social insurance, as well as uh, private and mutual sector insurance, has really been critical in managing those transitions and frankly managing social uh, risks but we've usually introduced those systems after the major impacts are being felt in this transition ironically we can see it all sort of coming ahead of us and we're going to have to think about those sorts of systems in advance which is always more difficult because that it's a trouble of motivation so um that's really what this talk's all about. And I think hopefully it's going to have big implications for all of us uh, wherever we work in, in insurance, or, sorry, in finance. But I mean, this, this slide just sets the scene, kind of three uh, areas, you know, as we all remember from 2015, for the next sort of three or four years, three, three or four years, big focus on individual companies thinking about their own risk disclosures using the transition physical liability bucket. That's still obviously ongoing, still lots of words on pages, but not many numbers in the in the back of the annual report. I mean, it's still very much a, a words exercise, but this is gonna turn into quantification quite fast with all the great work that's being done by groups like the Climate Financial Risk Forum and others. So that's sort of element number one. I think the next big turning point, uh, again, uh, you know, probably orchestrated most in London, but you know, around the world too, uh, the report by the Bank of England on uh, implications of climate to the banking system, which for the first time went beyond that and really said, we have to think uh, about long-term risks now and 
uh, how we need to manage that that future risk today. And it was a real seismic change of thinking. It's not everyone remembers the TCFD sort of moment. This is a much more, in some ways, deeper and more more significant moment, um, and a sort of strategic approach to how um, the market was going to have and regulators would have to think about this risk. And now we come to the sort of current phase, um, which is obviously around the drivers of, of net zero and resilience. But I, I would say that what's being seen now, and I think this will come forward in COP, is the idea of the financial sector and the financial system and capital being used as a primary means of directing and shaping and managing the trade-offs of, um, of the transition. And that's going to put pressures and opportunities on all of us within the sector far beyond, if you like, the duty of managing our own risk to uh, understanding how we'll be pressured more broadly. So um, but very, you know, how, do, how, do, how are things mainly sort of now coming together? Some of you may remember a speech, I think it was July 2019, I think it was in real life, uh, it was Sarah Breeden who introduced this idea, she may not have introduced it, but she certainly propagated it significantly, the idea of stewardship in the financial system around climate, um, picked up uh, around, around the place. And I suppose the next big punctuation mark was the synthesis of the, uh, the priorities for the finance sector uh, last November by Mark Carney in the run-up to COP. Um, in the meantime, you've had the um, massification of the NGFS from uh, three or four banks uh, four years ago to you know 80 plus central banks really in some ways feeding in from this signal and then obviously right now we see you know the mobilization through a variety of reasons um, and not least uh, you know the latest push coming from the United States uh, as we head towards COP26 so um, that's sort of a, a focusing of this about how how we now uh, drive and implement this. Next slide, please, Michael. Um, yeah. So, what's also quite exciting is, you know, for most of us in this space, it can get a bit cacophonous. For the wider world, there's so many things going on that it becomes quite um, bewildering. But things are synthesizing towards basically three objectives: net zero by, let's say, 2050, and a People realize, I think, you've got, we've got to get on with it. Um, obviously, a growing recognition that there's going to have to be resilience, broadly defined, and also a recognition, and you'll hear this phrase a lot, a, a just transition, which means uh, some level of equity, equity between uh, regions of the world, some which are affected by climate, some which are not, equity between communities which will be affected by the low-carbon transition and others are not, and also, frankly, equity between generations, actually, so um, this theme of a just transition, and if we don't have a just transition, we probably won't have a transition at all because one way or other, it'll become politically or socially or in some way uh, impossible to implement. So that's the first thing. Secondly, of course, people are realizing that at its heart, we may call it green, we may call it sustainable, we may call it ESG, but it's a risk management issue. Basically, it's a choice between plus four degrees at the end of the century or net zero by 2050, or something in between. And the trade-offs and management of that is really what this is all about. But also, um, that one way or other, access to capital, investment capital, underwriting capital, all sorts of capital, even, I guess, human capital when it comes to hiring people, 
will be essential and, and the sort of the regulation of that around risk generally but also um a few other sort of themes that may be beyond that lit it will be absolutely probably a critical valve of this uh, transition and also as i just touched on how do we appropriately share the costs of benefits of this over generations and between communities and the trade-offs and the pathway and that's uh, why insurance is going to come forward we we see this in a mini way already how capital is used uh, and the different markets to do this so uh, in the UK, uh, for those of you from the UK, you'll know this, but others may not, that if you need a mortgage uh, in the UK, you also need home insurance. Comes, I looked up the Act, 1925 Mortgage Act. It doesn't force you to have insurance, but it allows banks to force you if they want to. And that's the that's what happens. And essentially, the major risk people face, apart from the building burning down, is from is obviously from some sort of uh, natural hazard, usually flood or windstorm in the UK. And essentially what happens is the bank are using the insurance sector as, as a kind of a valve uh, to decide whether the mortgage is safe or not. And obviously if you couldn't get insurance, uh, you technically couldn't get the, couldn't get the mortgage. Uh, now what happened by about 20, 2005, six, seven, you may remember a lot of big floods in the UK, the sort of gentleman's agreement that insurers would always provide insurance began to start breaking down, particularly for 500,000 high risk uh, home, homes in the UK. And ultimately, a, a deal was struck that um, those 500,000 uh, homes uh, effectively could be reinsured through a special facility called FUDRE that would take some of the excess risk off, uh, off the insurers. That would be mutualized by all of us with an insurance policy paying about £10 a pop. Um, there were some rules. You couldn't buy build homes in, in uh, new homes in, in the flood, flood zones. But essentially, it was a clever way of mutualizing things. But the other thing that happened, you may remember 2008, we had a crisis. Uh, we had all, then we had um, obviously the new government, um, austerity. But the government still decided to spend um, a big, big commitment to flood defenses. And it was because of the lever of the insurance sector saying we need that, and that would unlock capital. So. We, we take it for granted, actually, uh, but it's, it's a good example of how it works. If you went to America or Australia or many other countries, they're in much greater challenges because they haven't linked capital with physics in quite this kind of way. So um, next slide, please. Um, just conscious of time. I've got, a, I've got a bit more time left, haven't I? Uh, 15 minutes. So how have we have we been here before? Um, and I think we have. I've got two or three examples, not just fire, which, is, which I often use. But I do think this is fascinating in terms of the relationship between credit and confidence and climate risk. So obviously, I could have talked about the Great Fire of London and Nicholas Bourbon and uh, all that great story. But I go forward about uh, 200 years or so. And in the 1870s in, in the United States, you can imagine a rapidly urbanizing US around that time. Very, uh, very destabled uh, US 10 years or so after the Civil War, but the country was urbanizing. But the climate risk of the time was urban fire or conflagration. We take it for granted uh, today that we don't worry about these things, but it had been a perennial problem, of course, for, for millennia, millennia. But the size and scale of the cities in the States was meaning that when the fires happened, they were massive. And by in the early 1870s, there was a string of major fires. Famous one in Chicago uh, destroyed nearly 100,000 buildings, 100,000 homeless. Many, many people died. 
but it was actually because of some very sort of extreme weather as well. It was dry, lots of wind, created similar fires in Wisconsin and Michigan. And you'll see there on the screen, as you can see it, there's a, there's a range of other fires that happened in the US and I could have had a big, big long list. And ultimately, um, people were up in arms and people were um, perishing, but that wasn't quite enough. But ultimately investors said, we, we cannot go on like this. We, we cannot go on building buildings which fall down. And uh, uh, you know, it, this is just too much of a risk to our future. And they decided, decided to go to uh, uh, a weak Congress at the time. And they talked about it and said, we need insurance. And of course, insurance was respected in those days because uh, insurers like, were like people like Benjamin Franklin. It was the essence of science and progress. And the upshot was that insurers came back a few years later and said, well, this community pot of capital won't be sustainable without a few macro things like, uh, like zoning laws and building codes and fire departments. And people said, well, we can't tell people what to do and that will cost money. And they didn't use this phrase, but these days they say, yes, but without that, you won't have resilience to sustainable growth. And this sort of pot of capital won't be sustainable. So in the end, it was the, the requirement of capital drove ultimately a change in urban morphology in the United States, such that the whole shape of cities changed as things got rebuilt. So that by 1920, 1930, outside of warfare, urban conflagration in the West was, um, was all, all but forgotten, actually. And I think there's something in the essence of that story about actually how capital and, in this case, climate and um, sustainable growth and a sort of a, a valve. I think there's something in that. Next slide, please. Um, but um, actually, <laughs> Michael's laughing. I, that's never a good sign. I can't hear you, which is a good, which is a good thing. I remember you reminding me about that very story. Wasn't it also the case that British advisors uh, told the Americans to use asbestos, which came back yeah, to yeah. To, to, to came That's back right. to a hundred years later. Anyway, yeah, back to the there, is a, there is a kicker to it, uh, uh, which we'll come on to. But some people might have heard me talk about urban fire before and say, well, yeah, okay, well, what, what, yeah, but what else, Ron? So here we go. Here, here's, here's three which have a relationship to um, what we might deal with with climate. So Otto Bismarck created the social insurance system in Germany in the 1870s to cope with the new industrialization of the time and also to try and put off uh, Germans and Prussians at the time of uh, thinking like uh, thinking like the Russians and heading for a sort of a slightly more um, alternative uh, approach to organizing themselves. Uh, so he, he was managing his risk uh, by helping other people manage their risk. Of course, you know, very much in vogue at the moment, discussions about the, the New Deal, uh, which was ultimately how on earth do we create a, a public insurance system, particularly around uh, employment, but more broadly to give people some level of security and confidence so that they can actually uh, invest and, and flourish and grow. Um, you know, and, and to show you how fashionable insurance was just a hundred years ago, the political titans of the time, Churchill and Lloyd George set up, you know, the Public Insurance Acts of uh, 1908, 9-11, um, led to the, the Lord's crisis, of course, if your history is good, um, to deal with similar challenges that have been faced by um, Bismarck. I, I read into the story of this. It was because when they were seeking to raise an army, not enough men in Britain had, were fit enough to go to war. 
when there was a recognition of the massive social problems of the time. Similarly, when it came to the post-1945 period, evidently the, 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 the um, birth rate was falling because after another world war, and basically a crisis every 20 years, communities had no confidence to actually think about having children. So that obviously led to impacts of uh, obviously 1945 and social insurance and goals. We're hearing a lot of that. So social transitions need some sort of insurance, broadly defined. And it wasn't all social insurance. Again, actually, not just urban fires, but the fact we have safe boilers, we were able to have electrification, was often around the requirements of the insurance system, again, broadly defined, to manage individual, but ultimately systemic levels of risk, either physically or in certain liability issues, which is a, brings me back to the asbestos uh, issue too. So, um, sort of again, the guardianship of capital can have an incredibly sort of powerful, uh, sort of invisible hand of control more broadly. Touched on the tragedy of the horizons, um, great story for those going up to Glasgow. Of course, you know, pensions are really invented in Scotland uh, by a group that only came uh, finished, I think, Technically, the funds closed uh, about 20 years ago. Um, uh, ministers and members of uh, ancient universities in Glasgow, in Scotland, had access to the first sort of annuities and life insurance to support widows and orphans. I think it was, I can't remember the date, it was a long time ago, and it led to everything that we've seen. And I think it's fascinating because it means that we've used the challenge of of the horizons for a long time in finance, and, and we forget about it. And finally, um, what, what, what is it that insurance systems, and I'm talking about them broadly, public, private, mutual, social, everything in between, we take for granted the need going forward to have standard units of risk. And the fact that the insurance sector usually, not always, but usually looks at risk and it annualizes it over, a, obviously over a 12 month period, across all forms of risk, but then translates that into a consistent way of, of uh, managing risk inside institutions, I think is, is undervalued. Um, it also has some distinctive risk intelligence and stress testing, which is probably now being more, more broadly used. Ultimately, the risk sharing pool is, I think, a magic litmus test on systemic sustainability. If the pool is not able to um, uh, fund itself, then you either decide for a variety of reasons to provide additional funds into that pool for social or other reasons of equity and affordability, or you decide you have to reduce the risk. But it is like it is like the cockpit of the plane, uh, allowing us to somehow keep a uh, keep a track of things. And going back to our floods in the UK, we're in a reasonably good position. Uh, in the US because they are ironically have a subsidized public system of flood insurance the federal government i think since 2005 has pumped in 35 billion dollars of support to the national flood insurance program basically to support people living in higher risk areas with high uh, vulnerability homes including second homes in florida uh, which are being supported by people across the states as it's a federal tax so you know poor people in detroit who may not even have a home. Um, so uh, it's fascinating to see how insurance systems can sort of help us guide this. So um, here's the second poll. Uh, 
do you think the history of social, private, and mutual insurance in earlier transitions indicates we will need to develop a strategic role for insurance systems to help manage and share major risks and dislocations across populations in response to the uh, climate emergency? There you go. I think you're on mute, Michael. Sorry, Rowan. Uh, we've got a lot of questions out here. The audience has answered, and I'm just showing the results now. We have 80% uh, agreeing, 82% you know, and 51% strongly agreeing. Uh, so uh, Mike Clark has an interesting question related just to this, uh, if you can answer it swiftly. Do you yeah. have a best example of uh, general insurance or casualty insurer insured commonality of interest which escapes the annual repricing barrier? You, uh, you, you, mean, uh, you mean an insurance that isn't priced on an, on an annual basis? Uh, at, least, at least gets around this annual repricing problem. Just an example or two for the audience. Uh, I, I see. So, sorry, because of course so, so some insurance is, is, is purchased for, for, for smaller periods, but of course it's, it's usually accounted for on an annual basis by the by, by the insurer. Yeah. I suppose I suppose one could. I mean, uh, uh, at the moment, no, because most policies in the in the PNC space are sort of annual annual ventures. Obviously, in the life and health uh, and pension space, uh, and we do see a, a marrying of those two worlds. Um, uh, it, it is longer, but no, this is exactly, okay. if you like, it's, it's not a problem for the insurance sector as such, it's certainly a problem for society. But uh, we'll come on to that. Well, one, one interesting example is we can see a move where we're looking a lot at the needs for resilient infrastructure and working with in, insurers and investors. And we, we think to take the skills of the life insurance sector and the health insurance sector and apply that and why not issue effectively a 30-year uh, infrastructure insurance policy to an asset, but that insurance will only be uh, maintained if the facility, the infrastructure is maintained. I think it's a bit like your performance bonds idea in a way. Um, so I do think this is going to going to lead to that uh, type of challenge. And just wanted to pick up on this idea of, of managing capital about five years ago. I think this idea is going to come further forward by, by Anna Gonzalez at, at Cambridge University. A, a report uh, written with the help of the Basel regulators, uh, how actually insurance regulation, by requiring buildings and other things to be uh, more resilient because of uh, the requirements of insurers, would actually protect human rights of life, livelihood, and shelter uh, in the face of uh, in the face of natural disasters. And you can see this sort of beginning to, to come through. So. Perhaps a couple of, I think one more, I think I've only got one more slide, Michael, and then uh, we'll be finished almost, yes, I have, one more slide, All, or almost on time. So wh where might we be heading in terms of stewardship of the financial sector in particular of the resistance? So I have a feeling that um, definitely there's going to be a, a further integration of our finance sector and, and long overdue it probably started like that then we went into our silos thank god for the financial services club because you you helped bring us all together michael 
but I do think climate is going to allow us to integrate better. So one example, if, if most financial transactions and asset values are going to have to have a climate-related component inside of their pricing, um, you know, if you've got a municipal bond in to, for a city and that municipal bond will actually have a physical climate risk component, for example, people are going to need to manage that. And I think there's going to be an interesting way of how people do manage that or uh, take it out with integrated instruments. And so, for example, the, the growing use of index and parametric uh, instruments to protect physical insurance type risks, not necessarily with insurance, it could be with other, other forms of capital. I think that is going to lead to a lot of integration of our markets in due course. And it's where the disclosure and risk management side will come together. Uh, again, I do think that public sector finances will have to become much more rigorous about their disclosure and management of contingent climate liabilities, certainly on the, on the, um, on the physical side, but also on the uh, transition side too. And maybe COVID has helped in that move. So again, if countries have to have these as contingent liabilities, uh, they'll have to be managed uh, and that could be interesting. So that's certainly one aspect of that. I've touched on the net zero thing. Um, we, we, we were lucky enough earlier this week to, to launch something at Willis Towers Watson called Climate Transition Pathways, which essentially is going with a panel of insurers allow higher emitters to maintain access to high quality underwriting support, but only in return for uh, a development and then a commitment and a verifiable commitment to a, a transition pathway. So again, you can see that coming forward and would love to pick that up through your um, th through some of the work you've done, um, Michael, as well. And then on the just transition, there's going to be have to be all sorts of interventions around how um, communities that often through no fault of their own are going to be at the wrong end of either climate risk itself or the necessary medicine to cure the illness, if you like, of climate risk. So unfortunately, the medicine is going to be a bitter pill for all of us in some ways, but for some, it's going to be a very bitter pill and for those who may be already um, uh, in a weakened state. So we're certainly going to have to think about greater public resilience interventions uh, around things like physical um, climate risk or certainly resilience interventions for individual um, sort of uh, financial well-being. I think that liability insurance is also going to play a role in a just transition because ultimately liability insurance is about protecting those third parties who have in some way or other um, uh, suffered through the actions of another. And I, I can absolutely see how liability insurance is going to be an important dimension in helping to uh, regulate and enforce and frankly cost duties of care which will become tractable as this risk is foreseeable and even in some cases um, forecastable. And as I've said before, um, and, and we're seeing this in the wake of COVID and uh, obviously uh, the, the general sort of economic challenges and austerity, um, suddenly social security, welfare, base, uh, basic earnings, all these things that are coming into play. People are saying, you know, what would a new beverage look like? I absolutely sense that within the climate domain, we are going to have to try and think through what some of that uh, sort of social security, but not necessarily just through the public system, 
uh, how should that be developed to be both economically rational and socially uh, rational? And I think the skills that we have in the finance world will propagate, uh, and some of our capital will propagate into the public sector. But equally, I think a lot of our, our world will be informed by how the public sector will, will interact uh, in that space. Because one way or other, as a community, locally, globally, nationally, we share these risks by taxation or insurance premiums or whatever financial flavor you think of. And that's how we, and that's how it will work. And that's how we, how we blend that. So, uh, Michael, we're just over time, but I think we've got a bit of time for Q&A. Over back to you in the studio. Rowan, that was fascinating. And uh, you've really galvanized the audience, which is the best sign of all. Um, so we've got a lot of questions. We may need to be a little terse, uh, but let's kick yeah. off quickly. Um, I, I, Damien Hoskins is curious, how soon before we can expect specific financial regulation on climate change risk management and reporting? Personally, I'd argue it's already here in the oh, sense of I, testing I, and banks. But. I, uh, so just go to the, if you want a couple of quick quick checks, the Bank of England website, climate change, just look at the latest uh, uh, requirements. But I suppose just to remind everybody, next year there's a consultation underway but i would be i would almost bet my my flood flood managed mortgage on on it that by next year um all uk companies or most of them above a certain key key level will be required to disclose under what's called tcfd the financial sector has some more rigorous and more detailed requirements than that so this is absolutely happening now i suppose it'll be making this much more tractable in terms of quantification is, is an issue of just developing the techniques but that is actually where it's going so i'd say yes you're right michael it's happening now but i think we'll start really feeling it in the next uh, couple of years um andrew ross uh asked the question how can we access insurance industry climate data to value assets at risk for cities and issue municipal green bonds in the uk to finance leveling up and related to that, Alan Mayo is asking uh, very much, what are the implications for cities and local authorities and the transparency of their assets and investments in climate mitigation and the outcomes, for example, in their annual reports? Okay, so to Andrew's question first, um, I think there's going to be, in Glasgow, quite a lot of uh, commitments and actions around the insurance sector's physical climate risk sort of expertise and experience. Of course, they're having to take what they've learned, but then now sort of put a forward gear on it. I think there's gonna be some quite exciting opportunities and commitments around public goods access to the sort of information and facilities that can help people do exactly that. And ultimately, it's an insurer's interest to do that because once people understand their risk, they might have to manage it. So, um, you know, it's probably a, a positive self-interest. Uh, to, to the second question around cities, I think cities are probably the epicenter of this challenge because cities can't diversify. You know, they are where they are. They have long-term commitments. Um, I think how cities manage and share this risk will be absolutely uh, a critical uh, public and private theme going forward. So I think probably five years until we get to the point where cities really are having to incorporate climate risk within the pricing of their, say, the municipal bonds are from the states. So, but then I think we'll have a more rigorous system in countries of, okay, what level of risk should the city be required to manage itself? 
at what level of risk is then that shared at a sort of a reasonable level, level within a country? I'm talking about a medium-sized country. And at what state formally does the federal government or the national government come in? And I think we'll have that sort of architecture of risk emerging because without it, it's an absolute chaos. Okay. Um, Mike Clark has been feeding a few comments in all during your presentation, and magically, they, they make a lot of sense uh, strung together. So give me a moment. Uh, he began with your comment about Sarah Breeden. He's, he's, he's worried if governments place too much emphasis on the financial sector having to do this, it gets them off the hook for joined up risk policy. Uh, and we are well aware of Sarah Breeden's we can only do so much position. He, he then goes on to, to point out two paradoxes. He finds uh, HMT, uh, Her Majesty's Treasury's uh, net zero review excludes the costs of climate adaptation, which is, which is an interesting point. And finally, another paradox, you know, can we explain why the financial risks of climate rank number 11 in the next steps, uh, in the 11 next steps of HMT's 2020 balance sheet review back in November, lower than the more efficient use of excess land at railway stations? So uh, it's just not matching up there on that public yeah. sector balance sheet. Um, so to, to the point about, I, I think that, I think what will, there will clearly be limits and, and the financial system is, is simply a transmission system. It's a gearbox, but it does have some great perspectives of being able to regulate something vital, access to capital, and have some means of deciding what is, what is rational. And I think that is a very powerful and important tool. Um, and to, uh, to be op to operate within the context of whatever regulatory, uh, sorry, policy environment there is. So clearly there are limits, and it is simply ultimately a transmission system. And if the rules that it's, in, it's required to apply are not, frankly, economic or rational, uh, it won't be sustainable. So, but I think there's probably a, a way for this trend to go before we hit the uh, before we hit the buffers, if you see what I mean. Um, the second to the second point, uh, I've come to this. I, although I'm getting to learn about emissions quite a lot, I came to this area from sort of resilience and the adaptation side, being a reinsurer. And uh, yes, I'm disappointed that uh, the resilience adaptation side was out of that first scope of, of, of the review. I sort of understand why, because um, it's always been a slight Cinderella, and some of the met metrics and mechanics are much more difficult. It's not like um, you know tons of carbon. At the same time, I know there's quite a bit of pressure to bring this online pretty fast for all sorts of reasons. And there is a, a civil contingencies, sorry, civil, um, sorry, contingent liabilities unit that's just been set up. I think it's under the auspices of the government actuaries department. I think we're gonna try and press them to, uh, you know, poke their nose in. Um, and there was one more question, Michael. I've forgotten what it was. Oh, the, um, uh, hang on, number 11 on the, sorry, what was the final question? Yeah, it, it ranked number 11 on Treasury's November review of balance sheet, um, lower than railways. But let's power on, we've got a few things here. Um, some questions that we're having Pratha scooped on uh, later this month. Um, ah. and, and you had your three points here, resilience, net zero, and just transition. Richard Parler says, well, you mentioned these three objectives, uh, but where does biodiversity fit in? And Nick Martin wonders, do you see the climate discussion broadening to more fully include biodiversity, especially given the introduction of the task force on nature-related financial disclosures? So uh, where does this fit in your framework? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, obviously, the, we, we were framing the, the subject on climate, so I'll sort of, uh, that, that was probably why I didn't incorporate it there. 
I actually, for, for me, so much of the biodiversity, and I'll include it in that was a natural capital ecosystem space. It's so absolutely integrated uh, in those three buckets. So, you know, resilience is often a function of uh, relevant sort of ecosystem services and uh, protection, everything from coral reefs to, you know, obviously in, in some ways the climate itself is an ecosystem service. So, um, uh, and ironically, some of the ways of valuing these things, which are often not owned by anybody, they don't have an income stream, is actually their impact on your risk. So, if you have to disclose risk and the presence of an ecosystem service uh, is reducing your risk or its absence would increase your risk, you have to disclose the chances of that. Suddenly, this natural asset has an imputed value and you don't need to actually own an asset to have an insurable interest in it. So, suddenly, there are interesting ways that we can unlock the value. Uh, of natural capital through the climate lens, through the liability side of the balance sheet. So I think there's one thing I would say is let's feed biodiversity, natural capital ecosystem services as much as we can into the climate surfboard, because that is the biggest surfboard right now. But actually, I, I was lucky enough to be a little bit involved in some of the, uh, you know, the discussions. Uh, and I think fundamentally, biodiversity ecosystem, is actually the larger umbrella. Our, our supply of climate ecosystem services, you know, a climate of an average of 14 degrees centigrade or a particular set of weather distributions, that is actually our ecosystem service, which we're trying to manage. So I, I couldn't agree with you more, but I do think we need to synthesize these things as much as we can. Otherwise, we risk overload. We've got to create a risk framework and metrics which, which unify these elements as much as we can. Otherwise, I'm afraid we won't work out just the ways of keeping score in time to even start addressing the problem. Yeah. Uh, interesting, Mike Hart points out that uh, CLCC comes under UKGI. In other words, it is an HM Treasury out of curiosity. And I find it interesting in government that it's the Paymaster General that holds the National Risk Register, uh, but is separate from this. So yeah, there's more joining up to do at government. Uh, but back to industry as well. Uh, Bob McDowell has got a question on, well, two questions, interestingly, on other areas. He'd like to know, what role do you think captive insurance could specifically play in insurance initiatives? And related to that, John Morris is curious, so is there a role for shadow banking or non-bank financial institutions in the management of transition risk? So any thoughts on either of those? Uh, gosh, what a bullseye on, uh, on captives. So, as you can imagine, we're, we're working with a lot of corporates, with uh, my Willis Towers hat on, with a lot of corporates helping them sort of get a handle on climate risks and then how to manage it in TCFD. And, and frankly, obviously, a lot of this is about applying actually some insurance thinking to, to the corporate space. And what we're finding is that the, the captive inside of companies is an incredibly useful and powerful means of um, uh, sort of connecting with and understanding the risk of the company in, in a framework that is then tractable financially. But of course, because it's a captive, it's facing the regulatory oversight of an insurance company. So all the Uber uh, sort of stress testing that's coming from the insurance regulator, which is a little bit more advanced, frankly, than the you know, general TCFD uh, sort of uh, approach, is absolutely remarkable. And then within companies, 
here's, a, here's an interesting observation. We find that the real fusion is when the sustainability people in a company meet the risk people in the company. And that's when this, and of course, through the general zeitgeist, this is now a boardroom issue. And it's that is the boardroom, the sustainability ESG folks who have the have the have the sort of um, have the purpose, have the uh, have, have the sort of momentum. But without the tools of risk, it's not really tractable in a company. And that's exciting. And the captive vehicle is often the half where they can come together and obviously then interface with the outside world, too. So great, great spot, whoever that was. And just any I'm thoughts? I don't know enough about shadow banking to be to be dangerous okay. or even well, useful. In time available, uh, one question, which strangely might be related uh, to captive insurance. Christopher Gleedle is curious. Uh, how will insurance deal with asset devaluation due to climate impact over time if it hasn't been factored into the funding in the first place? Um, and again, I think on a corporate level, I've certainly seen that with captives where people are trying to take that into account as best they can. But your thoughts on that? Uh, so, uh, end of last year, we, we bought a, a, a team from a, a group called CPI who uh, specialize in transition risk analytics for, for companies as well as for, for, for governments. And um, within the insurance world, with the greatest focus at the moment is how to get a handle on transition risk at all and make it you know something that can truly be understood to do exactly as was said then try and manage the likely uh, change in asset values um, and of course for insurers they, they have an approach for climate related risks as I said they've now got to put a better forward gear onto it and also apply that physical risk to their asset portfolios but you know they, they, there's a frame of reference for that for for transition risk we're really at the at the early doors as everybody is but it's usually for most companies an order of magnitude greater than their physical climate risk so there's no shortage of, uh, of, of objective um, I think um, I think in that respect, insurers will be, I know they've got some specific requirements, particularly on their uh, on their sort of reserves for, for underwriting, but I think in a way they'll be swimming in the same swimming lane as, as the mainstream asset owner and manager community in that respect with, yeah. with some special flavors. Mm. Well, Nikki Holtzhausen's kicked in, but we're over the wire, but her, her, her point there is the examples of shadow insurance and shadow banking. It gets you into areas like insurance and securities and catastrophe bonds and policy performance bonds, so uniting the both sides of the market, really. Well, we've run to time, um, and I know that because I'm getting lots of thanks and comments and praise, which will be passed on to you uh, here, uh, such as, you know, an excellent and timely presentation gets you thinking for Mark Althwaite. Uh, but I have to give the last comment to Mike Clark, who seems on particularly fine form today. He points out uh, relating insurance to everything, biodiversity is nature's risk management strategy. Uh, so very good job, Mike. Uh, well, it's been absolutely fascinating and fun, and I need to turn to three quick rounds of thanks. Uh, as ever to our sponsors, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and it's very much in line uh, with our thinking and yours on the, the issues that we need to put to our community. Um, I'd like to thank the audience. You really have been on form today, not just Mike Clark, but all of you. Thank you so much for your comments. Very helpful, and they will be fed uh, through to Rowan. Uh, as ever, next week is full of events. Uh, go check out the website. 
uh, which is the easiest way to do that. And in the time available, Rowan, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause. Uh, the technology doesn't really allow it either. But I have brought along my Korean karmic clapper, um, <laughs> which will have to substitute for the audience applause. Uh, and I hope uh, we see you again in the near future as this moves. It's been a long path for you, and you've done such great work on it. And uh, we'd like to hear more. Well, likewise. Thank you so much, Michael, for the uh, for the opportunity, and great to be with you today and, and, and the gang.